You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Collected Works number 59, Volume 2 of Transforming the Soul, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 6, entitled A Positive and Negative Frame of Mind, given on the 10th of March, 1910. If we study human life, Comparing one individual with another, we find the greatest possible diversity. In these lectures, we have spoken of typical differences and the reasons for them, with reference to character, temperament, and so on, and also with regard to a number of capacities and strengths. One significant difference, the difference between the positive and negative frame of mind, will occupy us today. Right from the start, I want to make it clear that this treatment of the subject, which will be fully in keeping with the rest of these lectures, has nothing in common with the shallow but popular descriptions of people as positive and negative. Our account will stand entirely on its own ground. We might first look around for a kind of clarifying definition of what is meant by a positive and negative frame of mind and might then say, from the point of view of a genuine and penetrating study of the human psyche, we can call people positive if in face of all the impressions pouring in on them from the outer world, they are able to stay firm and sure of themselves to the extent that they are not thrown by outer circumstances but can hang on to their clear-cut ideas, their sympathies and antipathies, and their usual way of behaving. Their actions follow certain urges and impulses which will not be affected by whatever transient impression may come to them from daily life. On the other hand, people can be called negative if they are easily swayed to submit to changing impressions and are strongly influenced by ideas brought to them by other people or in gatherings of people. They are easily inclined to change the way they have thought and felt about something and take something else on board. It is a negative trait, too, to allow all kinds of suggestions to alter their usual way of setting about doing things. This gives us a rough definition. But if we inquire how these deeply rooted characteristics of human nature work out in practice, we shall soon be convinced that we have gained very little from our definitions and that the search for any such convenient labels is fairly useless. For if we try to apply them to real life, we have to say, passionate people with a strong driving force that has carried a certain enduring stamp since childhood will have observed all sorts of human examples, both good and bad, and still stick to their own acquired habits. Other people can move mountains to try and change their mind, but they stand obstinately for their own convictions. Such people can be counted as very positive, but their positivity leads them to nothing but a dull life, shut off from new impressions, seeing and hearing nothing that could enrich or enlarge their experience. But people of a different ilk ready at any time to welcome new impressions, and who are always prepared to correct their ideas if facts go against them, might perhaps in a relatively short time change almost beyond recognition. We might see them going through successive periods in their lives, hastening from one interest to another, so that after a while they could seem to us to be totally changed people. Compared with the other, in quotes, positive type of person who is not open to new impressions, 
we shall certainly say that they have made better use of their lives. But according to our definition, we should have to call them, in quotes, negative. Again, people of a more robust nature, whose life is governed by custom and routine, might be led by the fashion of the moment to travel to a country richly endowed with art treasures. But they are so set in their ways and have loaded their souls with so many fixed responses that they pass by one work of art after another, at most consulting their Baedeker to see which are the most important, so that, despite being so positive, when they get home they are not in the least enriched by all the trailing from gallery to gallery, from one beautiful landscape to another. But there could be others who might follow much the same course of travel, but people with the sort of character who give themselves up to every single picture, losing themselves in them with great enthusiasm. They surrender themselves to every detail of every picture. But by doing this, each new impression wipes out the last, so that when they return home, their soul life is in chaos. These people would be, in a certain respect, very negative and opposite to the previous positive type. We could continue giving all kinds of examples of the two types. We could call negative those people who have learned much that their judgment has become uncertain on every subject. They no longer know what is right or wrong and begin to be altogether skeptical about life and knowledge. Others might absorb just as many of the same impressions, but they work on them and know how to fit them into the whole of their acquired wisdom. They would be positive people in the best sense of the word. A child can, in response to grown-ups, be positive to the point of tyranny by asserting its own inherent nature and trying to reject everything that contradicts it. Or grown-ups who have experienced a lot of life, including a number of disappointments and mistakes, can be capable, despite their rich experience, of devoting themselves to every new impression so that they are easily uplifted or crushed, and these are negative people compared to the child. It is only when we allow the whole of life to work on us, not in accordance with any theoretical ideas, but in all its variety, and if we use concepts only as an aid in ordering the facts and events of life, that we can sort out such decisive matters as whether people have a positive or negative approach to life. For in discussing the individual peculiarities of human souls, we touch on something of the utmost importance. The problem would, of course, be much simpler if we did not have to think of human beings in the most living way, as has often been stressed in these lectures, living their way through what we call evolution. We see the human soul moving from one stage of evolution to another, And if we are speaking from the true perspective of spiritual science, we do not picture the life of an individual between birth and death as always following a uniform course. For we know that one particular incarnation is a sequel to previous lives on earth and the starting point for later ones. And if we think of human life as a whole passing through its various incarnations, we can readily understand that in one earthly life a person's development may proceed somewhat slower, in that they retain the same characteristics and the same ideas throughout, so that in another life they will have to catch up on development, leading them to further levels of soul life. So the study of a single life is always in the highest degree inadequate. Let us now ask how these indications concerning a positive and negative disposition, can help us in studying the human soul in the way it has been presented in previous lectures. We have shown that the soul is by no means a chaotic flow of mental images, sensations and concepts, as it may appear to be at first glance, but that we can distinguish three members. First, the sentient soul, the one we can call the lowest member, is seen in its original form 
in people who had a relatively low stage of development, are wholly given up to their passions, impulses, desires and wishes, and simply pursue each one as it arises. In people of this kind, the ego, the self-aware core of the human soul, dwells in a surging sea of passions, desires, sympathies and antipathies, and is a slave to every storm sweeping through the soul. Such people follow their inclinations not by controlling them, but by being controlled by them, so that they give way to every inner desire, and the ego can scarcely lift itself out of this surge of desire. When the soul develops further, it becomes more and more apparent that the ego is working its way through to a strong feeling of being the central point. As the human being evolves, a higher member of the soul, which exists in everyone, gains predominance over the soul. This we call the rational or perceptive soul. When human beings stop following every inclination and impulse, then something emerges in their souls, which, though always there, can only be effective when people begin from out of their ego to control their inclinations and desires and acquire the strength to make of the incoming impressions a real inner life. So when this second member of the soul, the rational soul, comes to the fore, it deepens our picture of the human being. Then we drew attention to the highest member of the human soul, the consciousness soul, where the ego comes to the fore in full strength. At this point the inner life turns outward again, and its conceptual images and ideas are now not only there to control a person's passions, but at this stage the entire inner life of the soul is directed by the ego, so that it becomes a knowledgeable mirror of the outer world. When human beings rise to a knowledge of the outer world, it means that the consciousness soul has acquired supremacy in their life of soul. These three soul members exist in each one of us, but in each person one of them predominates. The last lectures have shown us that the soul can develop further still, even where ordinary life is concerned, if we are to be human beings in the true sense of the word. People whose motives for action derive entirely from external demands, who are impelled to act only out of sympathy or antipathy, will make no effort to become a better example of a real human being. This will only happen if we raise ourselves above the ordinary demands of sympathy and antipathy to moral ideals and ideas. And these moral impulses have to come to us from the spiritual world, for that is how we enrich the life of the soul with new elements. Human beings have a, in quotes, history, only because they can bring into their lives something which their inner being draws from unknown depths and impresses on the outer world. Similarly, we would never reach a real knowledge of the mysteries of the world if we were not able to take our outer experiences and connect them up, so to speak, quote, thread them in onto, close quote, the ideas that we cannot see in the outer world but which we bring to the outer world from out of our spirit. And only by so doing can we grasp and elucidate the outer world in its true form. In fact, this is how we infuse our inner being with a spiritual element and enrich our soul with those elements that we could never acquire from the outer world alone. As described in the lecture on mysticism, we can rise to a higher form of soul life by deliberately cutting ourselves off for a while from impressions and stimuli from the outer world, emptying our soul and devoting ourselves, as Meister Eckhart put it, puts it, to the little spark which is usually outshone by the changing experiences of daily life, but which is now kindled into flame. Mystics of this kind rise to a soul life above the ordinary level. They immerse themselves in world mysteries by bringing to manifestation, 
in themselves what those world mysteries have laid in their soul. In one of the following lectures we saw that if people await the future submissively and if they look back at the past in such a way as to feel that dwelling in them is something greater than anything evident in their present existence, they will have reached a mood of prayer toward this greater presence towering above them. We saw that when people pray, then in their inner being they grow above themselves toward something that they cannot see outside, but that transcends their ordinary life. And finally, we saw that by means of a real schooling in spiritual investigation, whereby they attain the three stages of imagination, inspiration, and intuition, human beings grow into a world that is as unknown to ordinary people as the world of light and color is to the blind. What we have seen then is soul development beyond the normal level and have gained a glimpse of the evolution of the human soul through all kinds of stages. If we look at the lives of people around us, we find that they are widely, they are at widely different levels of development. One person will show us on entering life that he or she has the potential to be on one or another stage and we will notice that they have been assigned a certain leeway within which they can bring their soul to a particular level and are then able to take with them through the gate of death what they have achieved and bring it further in a new life. We can see that people's characteristics show them to be at all kinds of levels. If we then observe how these people advance from stage to stage, we shall meet up again with the concepts of positive and negative. But now we shall not see one person as positive and the other as negative, but encounter these qualities in each individual in their successive stages of development. One person may, to start with, show the most dominant, stubborn qualities in his or her soul, and they are driven by instincts, desires, and passions, whilst their ego center is still dim and barely conscious. At that point, they themselves and the way they live their lives is very positive. But if they were to remain positive in this form, they would make no progress. In the course of development, people must change from being a positive person on that level to being a negative person, for they have to be open to receive what their development requires. If they are not prepared to suppress certain positive qualities in their souls so that new impressions can flow in and become part of them, or people are not capable of raising themselves out of a certain level of positivity given them by nature, and acquiring a certain negativity so that they can receive new impressions, they will not progress. This implies the actual necessity there is for people to overcome positive qualities in the course of their development and make themselves negative so that they can take some new content into their souls. Here we are touching on something which is at the same time both essential and to a certain extent also a danger, a chapter which shows us very clearly that only an intimate knowledge of the soul can guide us safely through life. For it shows us that we would not progress at all if we tried to avoid certain risks affecting soul life. And for negative people these dangers are always present, for negative people are open to the influx of external impressions and become one with them. This, of course, means that they will imbibe not only good impressions but also bad and dangerous ones. What we shall see if we observe people with negative soul qualities is the following. When they meet someone else, they will easily be carried away by hearing all sorts of things that have nothing to do with judgment or reason, and they will absorb not only what they say but also what they do. They will take them as an example to imitate and easily come to the point of resembling them. Such people may indeed be open to good influences, 
but there will also be the risk of their responding to every kind of bad stimulus and actually identifying with it. If we rise from ordinary life to the level where we can see what spiritual facts and spiritual beings are at work in our vicinity, we must say that people with negative soul qualities are particularly open to the influence of those intangible, indefinable impressions which are hardly evident in outer life. For example, the facts show that these people become quite different when in company than when they are on their own. Their whole soul life changes, especially if the crowd of people are active. When they are alone, they follow their own impulses. Even weak egos will look for the impulse for their actions in themselves. But in a community there is always a kind of group spirit in which all the various urges, desires and judgments of those present combine. Positive people will not easily surrender to this collective entity, but negative people will easily be swayed by the crowd. So we often experience the kernel of truth in these few words of a poet who wrote in dialect, Rosiger, even if he may put it crudely. I'm going to just read the uh, English because I can't quite read the German dialect. One is a human being. Two are people. Any more are cattle, a herd. Close quote. We can often notice that human beings are actually more sensible when they are alone than when they are in company, when they are almost entirely at the mercy of the general mood. Therefore, it is easily seen in meetings that those people who arrive without any definite convictions will listen to a speaker who speaks with enthusiasm about some point which had previously left them cold, and they may be affected not so much by the speaker himself as by the general acclamation of the rest of the audience. This grips them, and they go home quite convinced. The suggestive nature of a group mood plays an enormous part in life. It illustrates the risks to which a negative soul is exposed. It also shows us the danger of forming sects. For while we might fail to convince an individual of something, It becomes relatively easy to do so if there is a sort of sect setting, as here mass suggestion will be at work, spreading from soul to soul. There are great dangers here for persons of a negative frame of mind. We can go even further. In previous lectures we have seen how the soul can develop its way into higher regions of spiritual life, and in my title, Occult Science, Readers Aside, also known as An Outline of Esoteric Science, and the Readers Aside, you will find an account of how the soul has to go about it to reach beyond a certain level in its development and come to higher realms. The soul always has to suppress something, and initially it has to suppress something positive and open itself to new impressions by putting itself, as it were, artificially into a negative mood. Unless it does this, it will make no progress. We have often stressed what spiritual researchers have to do if they want to reach higher levels of existence. They have to bring about, deliberately and consciously, the condition that occurs normally in sleep, when the soul receives no more outer stimuli. Then they must be able to open their soul to impressions which at first, if they are still beginners, will be quite new to them and this means making themselves as negative as possible. Everything in mystical life and knowledge of higher worlds that we call inner vision, inner contemplation, does in fact fundamentally bring about negative moods in the soul. There is no avoiding this. When people suppress all stimuli from the outer world and consciously achieve a condition in which they are entirely concentrated in themselves, allowing nothing to come in of the kind that was in them when they were positive people, then their condition will be a negative one. Something similar can also occur if we employ an easier external method which cannot of itself 
lead to a higher life, but can give us some support in our ascent. If we turn from foods that stimulate positive impulses in a sort of animal fashion to a special diet, vegetarian or the like. We cannot bring about our ascent into higher worlds by vegetarianism or by not eating this or that. It would be altogether too easy if we could eat our way up to those heights. What actually does lead us to higher worlds is our work on our own souls. But this work can be made easier if we avoid the hampering influence that particular forms of nourishment can have. People who are trying to lead a higher, more spiritual life can readily convince themselves that their forces are enhanced by adopting a particular diet. Then if they cut out the foods that tend to foster the robust and positive elements in themselves, they will also arrive at a negative condition. But those who base themselves on genuine, true spiritual science, and not the charlatan variety, will not refuse to recognize the things, including external things, that are inevitably connected with real spiritual life. But this means that we may also be exposed to bad spiritual influences, when in the course of spiritual training we eliminate our daytime impressions, we become open to spiritual facts and beings which are always around us. Among them, certainly, there will be the good spiritual powers and forces which we learn to perceive once we have developed the appropriate organ. But we shall also be approachable by the evil spiritual powers and forces, for they are part of that, just as we have to listen to discordant sounds too, if we want to listen to harmonious ones. If we want to enter the spiritual world, we have to realize that we may also have experiences in the bad direction. If we surrendered ourselves to the spiritual world in an entirely negative way, our spiritual life could be threatened by one danger after another. If for the moment we disregard the spiritual world and spiritual development and place ourselves on the horizon of ordinary life, we may well ask, quote, those things that have the immediate effect of making people negative, such as a vegetarian diet, how do they work? Close quote. If we become vegetarians just to be awkward and without a proper reason, or as a matter of principle, without changing our way of dealing with life, this change to a vegetarian diet may possibly have a seriously weakening effect on our ability to resist bad influences. And particularly where certain physical aspects are concerned, we might get run down. But if certain people are about to enter a life of initiative and have to set themselves new tasks arising not from external life, but from a richly developed soul life, and they are bringing new content into their lives, then it can be immensely helpful to take a new approach to diet and rid themselves of any hindrances that may have come from their old eating habits. Things have very different effects on different people, but we shall notice this only if we observe life sensitively. It is because genuine spiritual researchers know these things that they emphasize so strongly that they will impart to nobody the means of raising themselves into higher worlds without making it clear to them that they must not only work on themselves to cultivate negative soul qualities needed for receiving new impressions such as intercontemplativeness and concentration, but that at one and the same time they must bring to their lives a powerful content which will fill and sustain them as they work their way up to new heights. If people were given merely the means for acquiring the strength for beholding the spiritual world, then the amount of negativity they would acquire in the process would expose them to bad spiritual forces of every kind. But if these aspirants for entering the spiritual world also have the good will to make themselves acquainted 
with what the spiritual investigator can tell them about what existence is like in the spiritual world, then they will never for a moment be entirely exposed to negativity, but will possess something which can fill their souls with positive content of a higher kind. This is why it is so often emphasized that the aspirant must not only strive to reach higher levels, but must, alongside doing this, make a thorough study of spiritual scientific material. This is how spiritual researchers take account of the fact that those people who are on their way to experiencing new worlds will necessarily enter a condition of negativity. However, what we have to call forth when we develop the soul consciously can be seen in the various people we encounter in ordinary life because, of course, souls do not go through development only in this present life but have done so in previous lives and when they enter this life they are already at a particular stage. Just as in our present life we proceed from stage to stage and must acquire negative characteristics on our way to a positive stage, the same thing may have happened when we last went through the gate of death and entered a new life with positive or negative characteristics. The design which sent us into life with positive qualities will leave us where we are and act as a break on higher development, for positive tendencies produce a clearly defined character. A negative tendency, on the other hand, does make it possible for us to receive a great deal into our souls in the course of life, but it also exposes us to all the ups and downs of life, particularly to the changing impressions made on us by other people. We can especially notice that when people of a negative frame of mind meet other people, the characteristics of these other people leave their mark upon them. Even they themselves can actually notice when they encounter a friend, someone with whom they have an affectionate relationship, how more and more like the other person they become. Within a marriage or a close friendship, they can even begin to form their handwriting like the other person's. As negative people, then, we are susceptible to the influence of other people, especially those close to us. We are even to a certain extent exposed to the danger of losing ourselves so that our own individual soul life and ego may be extinguished. That is the risk for negative people. The danger for positive people is that they are not readily accessible to impressions from other people, that they fail to appreciate other people's qualities, thereby making no real contact with anyone else and cannot form relationships or attachments. Positive people stand the risk of becoming hardened and lonely. But in other ways, in life too, we can notice how negative and positive qualities take effect in people's souls. In fact, we can gain a deep insight in life when we consider people from the point of view of their positive and negative characteristics. And this applies also to the way they respond to nature. What works best between one person and another? What works best when a person absorbs impressions from outside? There is one thing that in a way always makes the soul more positive, and this applies to people of the present day in their normal condition, regardless of their stage of development, and this is making a judgment considering something rationally and clarifying for themselves a particular situation or relationship that may arise in life. Whereas losing one's ability to make a sound, self-aware judgment is always something that makes the soul negative and brings to the soul impressions against which it cannot defend itself with positive qualities. We can even observe that when people Excuse me. We can even observe that when human qualities move down into the unconscious, they often have a stronger effect on other people than when they arise from the conscious exercise of sound judgment.
Unfortunately, we often experience in life, especially in a spiritual scientific movement, that when accounts of the spiritual world are given in strictly logical form, a form fully acceptable in other spheres of life, people are inclined to turn their backs on them. They do not like it at all that such accounts should be presented in a rational sequence of cause and effect. But if these accounts are presented in such a way that judgment can be omitted, then people are far readier to accept them. There are even people who are highly suspicious of those who give accounts of the spiritual world in rational terms, but very credulous when they are presented in a trance-like state as though inspired by an unconscious power. Mediums who do not know what they are saying and who say more than they themselves know attract more believers than to those who know exactly what they are saying. People often express surprise that it is possible for anyone to tell us about the spiritual world unless they are at least half out of themselves, so that it is evident that they are possessed by some other power. This is often taken as a reason for objecting to the conscious communication of facts drawn from the spiritual world. This is why it is much more popular to run to mediums than to listen to communications based on sound judgment and set forth in rational terms. However, when anything that comes from the spiritual world is pushed down into a region from which consciousness is excluded, there is always a danger that it will work on the negative characteristics of the soul, for these characteristics always come to the fore when people are approached by things coming from dark, unconscious depths. Close observation shows us again and again that relatively stupid people, if they have positive qualities, can have a stronger effect on people more intelligent than themselves if the latter are easily impressed by anything emerging from obscure depths. So we can understand how it happens in life that persons with finer natures and well-developed reasoning powers are at the mercy of robust characters with vivid minds, whose assertions derive solely from their own instincts and inclinations. If we take one further step, we shall come to a remarkable fact. Consider people who not merely belie their own reason occasionally, but whose reason is in poor shape and who say things that spring from this ailing mind. So long as this pathological condition is not noticed, they may have an uncommonly strong influence on persons of a finer nature. All these things are part of a real wisdom of life, and we can only sort it out if we realize that people who are positive in this direction may not be open to reason, whereas the negative type is irresistibly open to irrational influences. A subtle psychology will have to take note of these things. Now we will turn from impressions made by individuals on one another and look at impressions received by people from their surroundings. Here too we can make significant observations in the context of positive and negative. Let us think, for example, of a researcher who has worked very fruitfully on a special subject and has brought together a great number of relevant facts. By so doing, he has accomplished something useful for humankind. But now, suppose that he connects these facts with ideas acquired by way of his education and his life up to now, or from a particular theory or world view that may perhaps give a very one-sided view of the facts. But provided these concepts and ideas are the outcome of his own reflective thinking, they will have a healthy effect on his soul. For by working out his own philosophy, It will be something that puts him in a positive frame of mind. But now suppose that he has followers who have not themselves acquired the ideas from the facts, but have got hold of them by hearing of them or reading about them, and therefore will not have the same positive feelings that the researcher himself acquired through his laboratory work and study, and their frame of mind may be entirely negative. So the same doctrine, even though it be one-sided, 
can be seen to make the head of their school positive in his soul, while on the whole throng of his followers who merely echo the doctrine, it can have an unhealthy negative effect, making them weaker and weaker. We can surely notice this throughout the whole history of the life of the human mind. Even today we can see how people of an entirely materialistic worldview, which they themselves have worked hard to develop from their own findings, are lively, positive characters whom it is a pleasure to meet, whereas their followers, who carry in their heads the same basic ideas, but have not acquired them by their own efforts, and therefore these ideas have an unhealthy, negative, weakening effect. So we can register the fact that it makes all the difference if people acquire an outlook themselves or merely take it from someone else. In the first instance, it goes hand in hand with a positive attitude and in the second with a negative one. These things are in close association with one another all the time. Thus we can see how the way we deal with life can make us either positive or negative. For example, a purely theoretical approach to nature, in fact, anything we cannot actually see, can make us negative. But to reach a certain stage, we have to make way for a certain negativity. There has to be theoretical knowledge of nature. But we must not be blind to the fact that theories gained by the systematic study of animals, plants and minerals, and embodied in laws of nature in the form of concepts and ideas, work on us so that we devote ourselves to them in a negative frame of mind. On the other hand, if we respond with warm appreciation to all that nature in its grandeur has to offer, positive qualities are called forth in our souls. For example, if we take delight in a flower, not pulling it to pieces but responding to its beauty, or if we watch a sunrise, not investigating it in astronomical terms, but beholding its glory. For anything we adopt by way of a theoretical view of the world does not get us involved heart and soul. We just allow our others to dictate it to us. But our whole soul is actively involved if we are delighted or repelled by natural phenomena. What is true in nature is not concerned with our ego, but that which delights and repels us is bound to be, for how we respond to nature, whether it delights us or repels us, depends on the character of our ego. Thus we can say that living participation in nature cultivates a positive attitude. Theorizing about nature cultivates a negative one. But we must modify that by repeating that a researcher who starts by analyzing a series of natural phenomena is far more positive than one who merely adopts the other's findings. This has to be taken into account where learning is to be real education. And it is a relevant fact that wherever there has to be a conscious awareness of the things we have been discussing today, teachers would make sure that their pupils we're not exposed solely to the cultivation of negative qualities of soul. Why did Plato inscribe over the entrance to his school of philosophy the words, quote, only those with a knowledge of geometry may enter here, close quote. It was because geometry and mathematics have to be taken up in the soul in an active way and cannot actually be accepted on the authority of another person. We have to work through geometry by means of our own inner efforts and can only achieve this with a positive frame of mind. If this were considered today, many of the philosophical systems that buzz around nowadays would not exist at all. For those who realize how much positive work goes into mastering a conceptual system such as geometry, have respect for the creative activity of the human mind. But those who read Heckel's title Riddles of the Universe, for instance, will easily be able to produce another outlook like it, even though they have no notion of how it was arrived at. All they need do is alter the concepts a bit, but they will be doing so out of an entirely negative soul mood. 
Now, in spiritual science or anthroposophy, people have something which definitely cultivates a positive frame of mind. When people glean knowledge today by the very popular method of being shown slides and are shown the latest pictures of animals or other natural phenomena, they observe them entirely passively and their mood is a negative one. They do not need to acquire a positive frame of mind. They do not even have to do any thinking about it. Or they might be shown a series of pictures illustrating the various phases of a glacier on its way down the mountain. It would be just the same. These are just examples of how wide is the appeal of this negative attitude today. Where anthroposophy is concerned, it is not so straightforward. Slides could at most give a symbolic suggestion of its subjects. For with regard to those things that lead into the spiritual world, the only entry is through the life of the human soul. People wanting to get somewhere with spiritual science must accept the fact that its most important matters are not going to be the subject of demonstration. They are therefore advised to do active work in their soul so as to bring out its most positive qualities. In fact, spiritual science is eminently suited to cultivate this positive frame of mind. This is what is so healthy about its world outlook that it makes no claims except to arouse the forces sleeping in the soul. By appealing to the autonomous forces in every soul, anthroposophy calls forth its hidden forces so that they may enliven all the saps and energies of the body, having the best possible health-giving effect on the whole person. And because anthroposophy appeals to sound reason only, which cannot be evoked by mass suggestion but only through individual understanding, and because it renounces everything that mass suggestion can evoke, it reckons par excellence with the most positive qualities of the human soul. This is a plain, unvarnished survey of how human beings are placed with regard to the streams of positive and negative. They cannot rise to higher stages unless they leave a lower positive stage and go over to a negative one, where they are able to fill themselves with new content, and having made this their own, can work out of positive qualities on a higher level. Those who know how to observe nature properly will know that it is world wisdom that sets about turning people from positivity to negativity, so that from this negative phase they can reach a new positive one. From this point of view, it is illuminating to study an individual example, for example, Aristotle's famous definition of tragedy. A tragic play, he says, presents us with a dramatic plot aimed at evoking fear and pity in the spectators, but in such a way that these emotions undergo a catharsis, a purification. People coming along with their usual egoism to start with are made very positive by their egoism. They harden themselves and shut themselves off from others. When people start feeling sympathy for other people's suffering or feel their joys as though they were their own, they become to start with very negative because they go forth from their own ego and participate in the feelings of other people. They also become negative if they are deeply affected by the uncertain fate hanging over someone else and wondering what could happen to this person they have come to pity as a consequence of their actions. Who has not trembled when someone else is hastening toward a deed which may lead him to disaster, but which, driven impulsively, he is powerless to prevent? We are afraid of what may happen, and this induces in us a negative mood, for fear is negative. But we would become apathetic in life if we were no longer able to become anxious about someone who has an uncertain future. Sympathy and fear make us negative, but so that we can become positive again, a tragedy sets before us a hero whose actions are meant to provoke our sympathy and whose fate calls out our fear. However, the course of the dramatic action gives us the kind of picture of the hero 
through which our fear and pity are purified, and they are transformed from negative qualities into the kind of harmonious satisfaction we have in a work of art, and we are lifted up once more into a positive state. Thus the ancient Greek philosopher's definition of a work of art is of something that is necessarily taken up by a negative attitude in order for it to be transformed into a positive one. Art, in all its realms, leads us to a higher level, in the course of which we have first to be negative in order to progress from a less developed state. Beauty initially must be seen as something with which we have to be confronted, for without it we could not rise beyond our present stage. The rest of our life is then suffused with a radiance of a higher soul mood, if we have first been raised by art to a higher level. We see then how positivity and negativity alternate, not only in the single individual, but in the life of the whole of humankind, and how this alternation contributes not only to raising up the individual from one incarnation to another, but also humankind as a whole. If we had time, we could easily show that there have been positive and negative eras. In fact, the idea of positivity and negativity throws light into every sphere of soul life and of human life altogether. It does not happen that one person is a positive person and another a negative person. Both qualities concern everyone. Each one of us has to go through negative and positive conditions at different stages of our existence. Only when we see the matter in this light shall we accept the truth of it and take it as a basis for the practice of living. So our discussion today has been yet another confirmation of the statement we put at the beginning and ending of one of these lectures, the statement by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who because he could see no profound because he could see so profoundly into human life, was called the obscure one. Quote, Never will you discover the boundaries of the soul by whatever paths you search. So all-embracing is the soul's being. Close quote. Someone could, of course, say, quote, Then all soul research is useless, for if the soul is so vast that its boundaries can never be discovered, no research can fathom them, and one could be driven to despair. But only a negative person would say that. A positive person would add, quote, Thank God the life of the soul is so vast that knowledge can never encompass it. For this means that everything we comprehend today we shall be able to surpass tomorrow and thus hasten toward higher levels. Let us be glad that our soul life can all the time make a mockery of our knowledge. We need an unlimited soul life. For a limitless perspective gives us hope that we may all the time surpass one positive stage after another, so that our life of soul can proceed from stage to stage. It is precisely due to this unbounded and unknowable nature of our soul life that we are given this unique perspective of hope and confidence in the future. Because the boundaries of the soul can never be discovered, the soul is capable of going beyond its limitations and rising to ever higher levels. The end of Lecture 6